So as I was just kneeling before her, Lord, um, I was thinking about the question we started with, which was, why are you here? And the other question that came into my mind was, what do you need right now? What do you need right now? I have a really dear friend who is a brother priest that's also done a lot of healing work in his own life and and uh, he does amazing work with his people and he always quotes his therapist whenever I get into like a spin in my head or something and he's like, do you want to communicate a need right now? Do you have a need you'd like to vocalize? <laughs> Because we don't oftentimes communicate our needs. <clears throat> Some of you might be super healthy and you communicate your needs well, but most of the time I don't really communicate my needs. I throw out some facts in hopes people will come to their own conclusions about what I need and then surprise me, which is a lot different from just saying like, this is what I need. And I might do that with our Lord too sometimes. And, and it came to mind because, you know, like we do have a need right now. And, uh, and what we need, of course, is this person. It is this person. And maybe more than anything, we need to just deepen our relationship with him. And to deepen our relationship with him. You know, I think when the pandemic started, uh, I, I'll probably always tell this story about having pandemic pride. And uh, pandemic pride, I just made that up. I like it though. But I'll probably always tell this story as if like the story of pandemic pride, um, because I have another friend and he prays for me a lot. And all right, at least when he prays for me, it's really profound, I should say that. And he sends me an email right before everything locks down. And he says, I don't really know what this is about, but our Lord just really wants you to spend time with him. So I don't know what's going on with your life, but our Lord just seems to really want you to just spend a lot of time with him right now. Like maybe you're sick. I don't really know. And I was like, huh, that's weird. And then we got locked down. I wasn't allowed to go to the office. I wasn't like having meetings with people. I mean, um, I'm having all my meetings on Zoom. Most people don't know how Zoom works yet, so a lot of them are canceling. And uh, I did not spend a lot of extra time with our Lord. Because I think I had like this pride in me, like, well, I don't want to have to do that because of the coronavirus. <laughs> and I just didn't do it. 
And, and what happened was our Lord revealed to me that, that I do need to spend more time with him. And he does want me to, and he's really patient. And maybe I wasn't as far along in my relationship with him as I thought I was. Because I'm human. Like we're all human. And so we've been looking at these, these kind of pillars of Mary and the rosary and the Eucharist. Because that sort of third encyclical letter that he wrote, that John Paul II wrote to round things out was this encyclical letter, Ecclesia de Eucharistia. That the church comes from the Eucharist, and um, and so tonight I want to just kind of read through some of his thoughts from that encyclical letter. But, but there's one paragraph from the document on the Rosary that I want to circle back to, where he's talking about the liturgy and the Rosary, and he says. Consequently, while it must be reaffirmed with the Second Vatican Council that the liturgy as the exercise of the priestly office of Christ and an act of public worship is the summit to which the activity of the church is directed and the font from which all its power flows. And so we always affirm that the mass is the most important thing. It's the source and the summit of everything. It is also necessary to recall that the spiritual life is not limited solely to participation in the liturgy. Christians, while they are called to prayer in common, must also go to their own rooms to pray to their Father in secret. Indeed, according to the teaching of the Apostle, they must pray without ceasing. The Rosary, in its own particular way, is part of this varied panorama of ceaseless prayer. If the liturgy as the activity of Christ and the church is a saving action par excellence. The rosary too, as a meditation with Mary on Christ is a salutary contemplation. By immersing us in the mysteries of the redeemer's life, it ensures that what he has done and what the liturgy makes present is profoundly assimilated and shapes our existence. It ensures that what he has done and what the liturgy makes present is profoundly assimilated and shapes our existence. And, and he's getting to this point that there's a formation that has to happen in our spiritual life so that the more profound things that we do are assimilated so that they endure. I oftentimes talk about stages of intimacy and, and there's stages of intimacy. There's stages of falling in love with someone. You know, one of my counseling books, it talks about stages of falling in love. The first stage is noticing and then there's attraction. And then there's flirtation. Flirtation is just sending out signals to see if the person's interested in you. 
We can do that in our spiritual lives. Okay, I'm going to try praying and see if Jesus does anything. I'm going to show up at this Bible study and see if it's any good. Like, that's kind of like that stage. And then there's demonstration. Demonstration is when we, we do something, we perform some skill, or we do something to make ourselves attractive to the other person and to say, like, you know, I'm worth buying into. It might be like when you made an amazing dinner for your husband back when you were dating or something like that and you were so stressed out and you know, or you burned dinner and ordered takeout, like whatever it was. Right? We do things like that. We do those a lot in our spiritual lives, by the way. Like a lot of people skip noticing and attraction and they go right to demonstration and they're constantly like trying to show our Lord how good they are. It's interesting. And then comes like the building of trust and intimacy and vulnerability and being able to be my own person while I'm in love with this person. And eventually we get to like commitment. And then the epitome like within marriage is physical intimacy. And that the richness of that level of intimacy, it depends on all those other things being in place. We teach people that all the time. And all those other things have to keep being in place, right? It's not like you forgot about them. It's not like, you know, in a marriage, you're like, okay, now that we're at this level of intimacy, we're never gonna like just sit together. We're never gonna share, you have to do all those things. They all have to be nurtured along the way. And in our spiritual life, they have to be nurtured as well. Like the, like, it's not a lower thing to say, like, I think I'm just going to work on my friendship with our Lord right now. And so John Paul II is making this point that, like, the rosary immerses us into the mysteries of redemption, and we learn from Mary who our Lord is, and we learn about his life. And then the encounter, the bigger encounter, become something more rich. He says, the Second Vatican Council rightly proclaimed that the Eucharistic sacrifice, the source and summit of the Christian life. For the Most Holy Eucharist contains the church's entire spiritual wealth, Christ himself, our Passover and living bread, through his own flesh, now made living and life-giving by the Holy Spirit. He offers life to men. And I love this line in, par in the third paragraph. He says this, and he's talking about the night in which the Eucharist is instituted. He says, once again, we see Jesus as he leaves the upper room, descends with his disciples to the Kidron Valley and goes to the Garden of Olives. Even today, that garden shelters some very ancient olive trees. Perhaps they witnessed what happened beneath their shade that evening when Christ in prayer was filled with anguish and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground, the blood which shortly before he had given to the church as the drink of salvation in the sacrament of the Eucharist began to be shed. 
its outpouring would then be completed on Golgotha to become the means of our redemption. Christ as high priest of the good things to come entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's a beautiful paragraph because it starts with our Lord in the upper room in this fraternal gathering with his apostles and he gives them his blood. And then he makes the point that that same blood was shed in the garden of Gethsemane as he was sweating. That that same blood was spilled on Golgotha from the cross. That that same blood enters into the heavenly tabernacle enters once of all into the, once for all into the holy place securing our redemption and in that one paragraph he ties together that the eucharistic mystery includes all those things that includes our lord's life his death his resurrection and his ascension into heaven And so when we are, when we're at mass and we say the mystery of faith, we say, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. And those themes of death and resurrection are tied together. Because each of us can identify with our Lord in all of those moments. And so in that way, the Eucharist is a reminder that when we're suffering, we will be resurrected. And that things don't end with our death. That everything can be transformed. And that's an amazing thing to contemplate. In paragraph six, he says, I would like to rekindle this Eucharistic amazement by the present encyclical letter in continuity with the Jubilee heritage, which I have left to the church in the apostolic letter, Novo Millennio Iniente, and it's Marian crowning Rosarium Virginis Mariae. And so as there, he ties all three of these documents together. In another place, he writes, this aspect of the universal charity of the Eucharistic sacrifice is based on the words of the Savior himself. In instituting it, he did not merely say, this is my body, this is my blood, but went on to add, which is given for you, which is poured out for you. Jesus did not simply state that what he was giving them to eat and drink was his body and blood, but he also expressed its sacrificial meaning and made sacramentally present his sacrifice, which would soon be offered on the cross for the salvation of all. 
So the mass is at the same time and inseparably the sacrificial memorial in which the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated and the sac sacred banquet of communion with the Lord's body and blood. And he talks about the sacrificial dimension of the Eucharist and the Eucharist reminds us of sacrificial love. And in our American brains, we very easily jump to say, well, the Eucharist reminds me that I'm supposed to love sacrificially. But first and foremost, it was a sacrifice for you. Which means if we're ever in doubt that we have an advocate, if we ever feel like nobody does anything for me, if we ever feel like I take care of everybody and nobody takes care of me, like the Eucharist is proof that that's not true. It's proof that we have an advocate. And what we remember is that sacrifice. And he invites each and every one of us into that. In paragraph 21, John Paul II wrote, by offering them the apostles, his body and blood as food, Christ mysteriously involved them in the sacrifice, which would be completed later on Calvary. By analogy with the covenant of Mount Sinai, sealed by the sacrifice and the sprinkling of blood, the actions and words of Jesus at the Last Supper laid the foundations of the new messianic community, the people of the new covenant and he calls them into communion with himself even before the sacrifice is offered i think it's adrian von spire reflects on this and she talks about how like the apostles are invited into communion with our lord's sacrifice before he even offers it which then allows them to offer it themselves and every time that they would offer mass and it represented that sacrifice, they were somehow united with our Lord in his passion, death and resurrection. And so too, every time we receive our Lord in Holy Communion, we're united with him in his passion, death and resurrection. And his intention at that sacrifice is applied in our life. His intention was the salvation of the world. And it's applied to our life every time we receive him in Holy Communion. Which is an amazing thing. In paragraph 24, the gift of Christ and his spirit, which we receive in Eucharistic communion, superabundantly fulfills the yearning for fraternal unity 
deeply rooted in the human heart. At the same time, it elevates the experience of fraternity already present in our common sharing at the same Eucharistic table to a degree which far surpasses that of the simple human experiencing experience of sharing a meal. Through her communion with the body of Christ, the church comes to be ever more profoundly in Christ in the nature of a sacrament. That is a sign, an instrument of intimate unity with God and of the unity of the whole human race. This morning we were talking about just the disunity that we're experiencing right now in our culture. Sometimes it's the disunity we're experiencing in our family or the disunity that we experience within the church itself. And he goes on to say the seeds of disunity, which daily experience shows to be so deeply rooted in humanity as a result of sin are countered by the unifying power of the body of Christ. The Eucharist precisely by building up the church creates human community. And so we have seen as people have been away. I mean, it's just a very interesting thing that I was reflecting on. I'm not going to say like, this is absolutely like what I'm saying. Right. But it's just an interesting thing that everybody in the country canceled masses. And then like all of a sudden this disunity pops like all over the place. Secular people would not believe there's a cause and effect relationship there. But I think maybe there's a cause effect relationship and the disunity in our own hearts that we feel when we've been distant from our Lord. And the frustrations that get taken out when we've been distant from our Lord. Which means we need him. Like we need him to bring unity to our lives and to bring unity to our hearts. And then there are those times when it hasn't been possible to be near him. And so John Paul II writes about this dynamic of spiritual communion in paragraph 34 and 35. He says, precisely for this reason, it is good to cultivate in our hearts a constant desire for the sacrament of the Eucharist. This was the origin of the practice of spiritual communion which has happily been established in the church for centuries and recommended by saints who are masters of the spiritual life. St. Teresa of Jesus wrote, when you do not receive communion and you do not attend mass, you can make a spiritual communion, which is a most beneficial practice. By it, the love of God will be greatly impressed on you. He goes on to say the celebration of the Eucharist, however, cannot be the starting point for communion 
it presupposes that communion already exists. A communion which it seeks to consolidate and bring to perfection. The sacrament is an expression of this bond of communion, both in its visible dimension, which in Christ and through the working of the Holy Spirit unites us to the Father and among ourselves, and it's in its visible dimension, which entails communion in the teaching of the apostles and the sacraments in the church's hierarchical order, the profound relationship between the invisible and the visible elements of ecclesial communion is constitutive of the church as the sacrament of salvation. He says invisible communion, spiritual communion, though by its nature always growing presupposes the life of grace by which we become partakers of the divine nature and the practice of the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Only in this way do we have true communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nor is faith sufficient. We must persevere in sanctifying grace and love, remaining within the church bodily as well as in our heart. What is required in the words of St. Paul is faith working through love. And so there is a real practice of spiritual communion and it's something that we should cultivate in our hearts. And when we find ourselves longing for our Lord, that's something that we can call upon. And, and I'm hoping it's something that, that we really retain in our practice. And it does move hearts and I've seen it move people's hearts. You know, my favorite like spiritual communion story is when I was newly ordained, like it was the year of the Eucharist. I was ordained on Corpus Christi Sunday, the year of the Eucharist. So every one of my homilies was about the Eucharist. And, and there was this woman who used to come to the church and she brought her mother with her. And, uh, and I was just enjoyed them, you know, and, and uh, but I noticed that this woman who brought her mother never received. And I have no idea why. And there was one day I gave this homily about the importance of receiving communion. And then I was feeling a little like guilty, like, ah. And so I just sat down and I said, at this time, I'd like to invite all those who are unable to receive our Lord in the Eucharist for whatever reason or circumstance to join in making a spiritual communion. And I prayed this prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, although I cannot now receive you, in the most holy sacrament of the altar, I ask you to come spiritually into my heart and abide with me forever. You in me and I in thee, in time and in eternity. Which is from the 54 day rosary novena book. And, uh, and after mass, like this two people left mass and, and this woman who brought her mother, she just kind of looked at me with like a tear in her eye and said, thank you. And, and I don't know whatever happened in her life along the way, but she sent me a personal note when her mom finally passed. Recently, I was at one of our parishes and like, sure enough, like she was there super involved in different things and like somewhere along the line, something shifted. And nobody can tell me that that desire wasn't born out of that openness and cultivating that desire in her heart. And it's a desire that we all need to cultivate in our hearts. And it's so easy for us to shut down and get frustrated because things aren't going the way that we want them to go. 
I don't want to go make four holy hours a day just because of COVID. <laughs> but that manifests in lots of ways. Because there's a chance we're going to miss out on something in some place in our life that our Lord is trying to build relationship, where he's trying to build foundation. And when we take our eyes off of him, we miss out on something amazing. And John Paul II also talks about how Mary herself is an example. He says, Mary throughout her life at Christ's side and not only on Calvary made her own the sacrificial dimension of the Eucharist when she brought the child Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. She heard the aged Simeon announce that the child would be a sign of contradiction and that a sword would also pierce her own heart. The tragedy of her son's crucifixion was thus foretold, and in some sense, Mary's Stabat Mater at the foot of the cross was foreshadowed. In her daily preparation for Calvary, Mary experienced a kind of anticipated Eucharist. One might say a spiritual communion of desire and of, de and of oblation, which would culminate in her union with her son, and his passion, and then find expression after Easter by her partaking in the Eucharist, which the apostles celebrated as the memorial of that passion. This is another kind of beautiful meditation to think about how Mary lived her life preparing for her son's death on the cross. Then she had to be with him, watching him go through that, feeling it with him. And then after Easter, certainly she participated in the Eucharist. which became the continual memorial of that. But the memorial of the whole thing, of his passion, his death, and his resurrection. And certainly she shared in his resurrected life. And as we celebrated today, she also has already shared in his ascension as she was assumed into heaven. And that's the desire that we all have, right? It's the need we all have. The need we all have is to be transformed in that way or to be able to see our lives in that way, in that context. And so I hope today as you were in adoration, I was very edified to see many of you like, extending your time with our Lord. That in some way, that sense of Eucharistic amazement was enkindled. That something new was revealed or 
even to just be able to look here and recognize a person, you know, and recognize a person. Because I think sometimes it's easy for us to, <clears throat> to know, to be able to do apologetics about the Eucharist without recognizing that this, this same Jesus that walked the earth is now on the altar. I think one of the questions that I ask sometimes is like, what does it mean that our Lord is really present on the altar? And people who have studied a lot, they'll say it means that through transubstantiation, the substance of the bread has now ceased to be the substance of the bread, but the accidents remain. And so it has the characteristics of bread and it tastes like bread, but it's really Jesus. And that's what we mean. Or it means that the body and blood and soul and divinity are all present there. But there's also a narrative that John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that the second person of the Holy Trinity united himself to a human nature. He became like us in all things but sin. And he walked the same earth that we walk and he had friendships and he mourned the loss of his friends and, and he suffered and died so that we could live. And the third day after he died, he rose again from the dead. But before even any of that happened, he took bread and said, this is my body, which will be given for you. And he did that so that he could always be present to us. So that 2000 years later, that same person can be sitting in the room with us. So that 2000 years later, we could look at our Lord's body in the monstrance and recognize the same Jesus that encountered us in our pain once, the same Jesus that showed up when our parent died, the same Jesus who made the blind see and the lame walk in the gospels. And if that's all true, then that means he like, he really loves you. Cause that's all a really big deal. And we don't always take the time to reflect on that. We don't always take the time to reflect on that. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I'd kind of leave you with that meditation tonight. Because they had seen all the amazing things that happened in Jerusalem. They watched everything. They saw our Lord die. They heard that he rose again from the dead. And then they went home. 
And so they're walking back, they're like leaving. And our Lord starts walking with them, but they don't recognize it's him. And they ask him what's, and he sort of asks them what's been going on. Haven't you heard everything that's happened? And then it says that our Lord explained to them from the prophets everything that had happened. And so our Lord interprets the scriptures for them. And then they stop and he takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and they recognize him. And in that moment, they go back to the community. And as they're going back to the community, they say this, we're not our hearts burning within us. As he explained to us everything from the scriptures. We're not our hearts burning within us. And so they recognized our Lord in the breaking of the bread, but the foundation was laid in meditating on the scriptures. And going back and meditating on the scriptures. So that when that moment came, it had an amazing impression on them. And I think that there's, there is a, there's a logic to that. And there's a lesson in that. That we all need a little more Eucharistic amazement in our life. And that comes from like encountering him as we meditate on the scriptures, it comes from encountering him as we meditate on his life. That we may recognize everything that he's done for us. It's another way of saying going back to build up the foundation. Going back to build up the foundation. Because if the Eucharist is a source of unity and he's calling us to be a sign of that unity In the world we live in now and going forward, we're gonna need a firm foundation. I'm just gonna end with that same prayer of communion, Lord Jesus Christ. 
although I cannot now receive you in the most holy sacrament of the altar. I ask you to come spiritually into my heart and abide with me forever. You in me and I in thee, in time and in eternity. Amen.